0: Amen, and good morning to you. As you're grabbing your seat, I invite you to also grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1, where we're going to continue right where we left off uh, from last week. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Mike Kesarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. As we um, come to another week, it's another week that we're actually blessed to uh, come together in each other's presence, for those of you who are here physically. Um, However, given the uh, where we are in the pandemic, and given the rise in in rapid increase of cases in our county, I I do want you to know um, that our leadership here is under um, just continually. uh, They are continually considering how much longer we can go uh, with in-person services. Um, There's been there's been a lot of prayer and discussion already. to this end. And um, I would ask that you would join us in prayer and asking for wisdom on just what's the best, most God-glorifying thing to do. And I share this with you transparently, um, just so you that, know that a change could come at a moment's notice. Um, as of right now, though, uh, we are here in person, and it's a blessing to be in person. Uh, Should that change, I would just ask for your graciousness and and your understanding as we try and navigate these very difficult times together as a church family. Um, With that, your monthly reminder, I want to remind everyone that uh, we we have asked that if you are in the building uh, for the whole duration of the service that you keep uh, your masks on. Um, I've I've made it a habit to regularly remind you. I'm not singling anybody out, but uh, it is very important that you keep your masks on. We ask that you cover both your mouth and your nose, uh, that you maintain the social distancing at all times. Um, This has to happen uh, if we hope to continue to meet in person. Uh, And I'm also going to ask that you exercise proper judgment on whether or not you should even be here Uh, in person in these services, whether it be by health or whether it be by uh, who you are exposed to throughout the week. Um, Coming into the Christmas season, I'm not going to tell you who you can and can't visit with. uh, And I'm not going to sit here and tell you where you can and can't go. That's between you and your family and God and whoever you're with. Um, But I will ask that you just consider the ramifications of your actions and the impact uh, that they have on other people here if you do join us in in person, I'm just going to ask that you be responsible uh, and and have wisdom in your interactions here. uh, And every Sunday, even consider where have I been and who have I been with uh, this week prior to joining us on Sundays. And it's my hope that as we are diligent in these things, that we would avoid any kind of outbreak within the church. Before we look to god 's Word this morning, I think it would be appropriate to ask god to to guide us in our time this morning and to really guide us as a congregation as a whole and so would you pray with me, dear Father? Your word tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, that we can ask for it, and you will give it generously as we continue as a church to walk through a very difficult time. Would you give us wisdom on our Steps here as a church, Lord, we seek to honor you and glorify you in all that we do. I pray, Lord, that any decisions that are made here would be made with just that motivation of glorifying your name. And now, Father, as we look to your word, as we gaze at the magnificence of of your Son Jesus, would the Holy Spirit give us clarity of thought so that we may know you? and that we may know your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take a look at scripture together. John 1, uh, I'll read verses 6 through 13. You can follow along as I read. He writes, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. but of God since the dawn of time itself, God has been revealing himself to mankind. really that's the whole story of the bible it's It's one of revelation, and one of the primary ways that God has revealed to himself. Uh, revealed himself to us as we spoke about last week is his word. He speaks, God talks. Throughout the Old Testament, the primary way in which God spoke to humankind was actually through what we call the prophets. These were ordinary men that the word of the Lord came to, and then these ordinary men would, would share his word with humans. And God did this fairly consistently until about 400 BC. And then he was silent. He stopped speaking through the prophets. He continued to reveal himself, definitely through the general sense, but he didn't speak through another prophet until the first century, when finally, what scripture describes as a voice in the wilderness or the desert, a man came along in order to prepare the way for the Lord. We know that man is John the Baptist. Every single one of the gospel writers, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John, uh, they begin the opening chapters of their books by talking about and writing about John the Baptist. And and so we see him and we recognize him as as a fairly significant figure in scripture. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise to us because if God has been silent through the prophets for 400 years, and then all of a sudden he speaks, this would have a jarring effect on us. Think about it. Imagine you're outside doing your yard work. It's a peaceful day in the summer. Uh, there's, there's no noise. And then all of a sudden, out of what feels like nowhere, there's a trumpet that sounds a loud ringing trumpet. Somebody's walking down the streets, blaring that trumpet loud, and it's a herald. And he's calling you, he's telling you, hey, get up, make way for the king. Make way for the king. You, you would you'd kind of sit up, right? Your, your ears would perk up. This would absolutely capture your attention in the same way. John the Baptist's main role was as a herald. He called on the people to make way for the king, for the light that was coming into the world. We know from all of our other accounts that John the Baptist had actually quite a following himself. He had his own disciples, and perhaps he had too good of a following. Right. It's been suggested that John developed such a following that many people of the time followed him more than they did Jesus, more than they did the man that he was proclaiming. Right. And uh, later on, we see this in chapter three of, of the book of John, um, where John the Baptist's followers, his disciples go to him and say, hey, that guy that you were hanging out with earlier, John, Jesus, that Jesus guy, he's on the other side of the river and he started a baptism ministry, and everybody's going to him. John, aren't you concerned? This is like if they put a church down the street, and everybody decided to go to that church instead, and maybe there would be some people that would be concerned here, saying, aren't you concerned? They're going over to that guy, John. We're losing people from our ministry. Perhaps John's followers thought too highly Uh, of John as they were kind of, you get the sense that they were envious of Jesus, that he's stealing people from their ministry. Uh, So back in our passage, we read about John the Baptist, um, right in the middle of this story about the light. We got to wonder what what is the relation here? Verses six through nine in our passage, or six through eight, excuse me, uh, may feel oddly placed. Right? We were talking about the light. We were talking about the word. And now all of a sudden we're introduced to this guy named John. And verses 6 through 8 feel like an appendage of, of sorts. But it does serve a purpose. It's almost as if John the gospel writer, who is actually different than John the Baptist, by the way. John the Baptist did not write the book of John. It was, uh, this, this was written by the apostle John. But John the gospel writer wants to essentially set the record straight. Right? It serves this purpose. He wants everybody to know, yes, who Jesus is, uh, but John the Baptist has probably developed such a following but he, that he also wants to make sure that they knew, knew who John the Baptist isn't. He wants them to understand that, yes, John the Baptist is uh, an important figure. He, he, um, it's worth mentioning him, but he's not the main character of this story. He's not the one that I want to tell you about. Two things in verses six through eight that I want to draw your attention to. First, our writer is clear that John was sent. What was his role? As a witness. This is an interesting way to describe John the Baptist. But really, it informs us about the basis, the foundation of Christianity and our claims. Notice that it it doesn't say that John is a teacher even though he was. Notice it doesn't say that John was a baptizer, even though he was. It doesn't even say that he is a prophet, even though he was. No, this says that he is a witness, a witness. This communicates that something has happened. An objective event has occurred that you can physically examine with your own senses. If you're an investigator and you want to get the details of an event that occurred at a specific time, on a specific date, in a specific place, you're going to have to ask a witness. John the Baptist is not merely concerned with teaching timeless truths. He's not here to establish a philosophy or, or a teaching, an ideology. No, he is ultimately a witness. You see, Christianity is not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. No, something definitive has happened. Something objective has happened in time, and it's absolute. Christianity is Anchored in human history, its very foundation lies in events that you to this day can examine for yourself and see it with your own two eyes. It's the first thing I want us to notice about John. He's a witness. And second, I want to draw your attention to what he is bearing witness to. And that is the light that all might believe. The what is really a who. He's bearing testimony to Jesus. So when I say Christianity is based on an event, that something happened at some time in some place, I'm talking about the events surrounding this man, Jesus, one of which is his very birth that we are about to celebrate in the Christmas season. This is a point in time that has been marked in human history that, that, that is a, uh, pointing to a greater story about God coming into the world to save us from our sins. And John bears witness to that. He wants everybody to know that. If you were to let your eyes wander down to verse 15, it actually quotes John the Baptist, our writer. He cries out, "This was he of whom I said, who, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me." You see, this is the wonderful thing about John the Baptist, is that no matter what his following, he, he has a very clear understanding of the role he plays in Jesus' story. Others may not. But John knows that he's just the supporting actor. In every single gospel, John comes as the herald, the messenger, the one before. And in every single gospel, John willingly steps to the side and lets Jesus take center stage. As John's ministry and influence grew, it would be very easy for him to say, oh, look at me. Look at all the good stuff that I'm doing, but no he says, "Look, I'm nothing I, I can't even untie that man's sandals. That's how unworthy I am, and so I'm going to just step to the side and let Jesus do his thing. John the Baptist witnessed Jesus, witnessed his nature that we discussed last week, right the fact that Jesus was eternal and that he was divine and that he was creator, and now in verses 9 through 13, our gospel writer goes on to describe um, our relationship with the light, right? Uh, the, the first five verses that we looked at last week really tell us the nature of Jesus. These next five verses that we're going to look at actually tell us the nature of the world, our nature, right? Our relation to the light. And take a look at it right there in verse 9, the true light. Was coming into the world. And in verse 9, we see that the, this light gives light to everyone. In other words, it, it illuminates everything. What we must know from this verse is that there is nothing secret about the message of Jesus, there, 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 is, there is no hidden or mystical knowledge that you need to know. This light is out there in the public for everyone to see. Oftentimes when I watch TV or I'm browsing the internet, I'll come across articles or programs or advertisements that claim to know some kind of truth, right? You know what I'm talking about because you've seen these before. They, they claim to know, they have this secret knowledge of a quick cure for that illness, and the Internet knows what illness you're dealing with because it's creepy. They can hear you talk, I'm telling you. These advertisements come in, right? They, 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 they know you're looking for a cure, and they've got secret knowledge, mystical knowledge of how to cure that. They have the best investment advice for today, or they have five amazing techniques to drop 50 pounds in a month. And, and, and the secret knowledge that we have that you don't, you can have it. All you have to do is give us your credit card number. All you have to do is subscribe, and then we'll show you the light. We'll give you our knowledge that we know that will make your life better. Oftentimes, such information that we think will benefit us is shrouded in mystery. It's secret information, and I've got to contribute in some way to be in the know, to be part of the club. There are cults that use this tactic. It is the cults that claim secret knowledge or wisdom, but not with Jesus. There is nothing secret about Jesus. There is no hidden truth in Christianity. This light shines on the whole world. And because this light shines on the whole world, it means that it will have a universal impact. That even in this room, 2,000 years later, there isn't a single person who isn't affected by the events of Jesus. That isn't affected by this baby laying in a manger. So you wonder, what's the big deal about this baby? This is the big deal about Christmas. This is why we celebrate Christmas, because that when that baby was in the manger, as soon as that baby was born and long before, it had an impact on you sitting here today because the light shines on everyone in the world. You are impacted by this in some way. Now let's explore this a little bit. Verse 9 says that the light gives light to everyone. Okay, what could this possibly mean? It cannot mean that everyone the light shines on is a believer, because in the very next verses, we get, we get a much different story. No, what verse 9 is speaking to is the penetrating nature of the light, that it lights up everything, that exposes everything. There's no crevice of the human heart that it doesn't reach. There isn't a single person on the earth who has ever walked the earth that has not been exposed by this light for who they truly are. You cannot think of Jesus and his nature without being reminded of the darkness of your own heart because it's the very nature of Jesus that puts a spotlight on it. This is why people squirm when you go out and and tell people about Jesus in your workplace or out in public. They just kind of squirm as soon as you say the name Jesus. It's uncomfortable for them because they don't like the spotlight on them. They know that every bit of darkness is exposed, whether they can articulate it or not. That is what's going on. They get nervous. And John explains to that end what happens in the world in which the light shines. We see the world's response. First, the world did not know him. Jesus was unrecognized. The picture that we get is one of confusion or uh, really disorientation. There's a puzzlement of sorts, right? When I was a teenager, um, I did a lot of stupid things. Uh, I know that may not be a surprise to some of you. <laughs> One of those things that, uh, that I did was something that we called uh, star tipping. Okay? Uh, my friends and I, we would go outside in the middle of a field in the darkest of nights. Right? When there was not even a moon shining uh, in, in the sky, and we would go, we'd try to get away from any kind of fabricated light that there was. We wanted it to be as dark as humanly possible. And somebody would stare up at the stars... And they would start spinning as fast as they possibly could. And when they got good and dizzy, someone would take the brightest flashlight we could find and they would turn it on and shine it in their eyes. And if the darkness was dark enough and the light was bright enough, every single time the person who was spinning, when the light turned on, they would just fall flat on their face. And it was hilarious. Don't try it at home. I think one of my friends got a concussion out of it. Um, However, as a veteran star tipper myself, I will tell you that there was nothing more disorienting or or confusing as staring into the light when I had just been surrounded and engulfed in dizzying darkness. And this is what has happened uh, in the world as a whole. All of us in our initial state of sin are confused and disoriented by Jesus. We just don't really know what to do with them. There's a disconnect between the world and this light. There is a blindness to to this light. There is an uncanny ignorance to all of this. And, And I say uncanny, I use that word because if anyone should recognize Jesus, if anybody should recognize him, it should be his very creation. Right? John emphasizes how illogical this is and how severe the the ignorance is by pointing out that the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, did not recognize him, did not understand him. You would think that the relationship between creator and creation would be evident. Back before the pandemic hit, when the hallway here on Sunday mornings was crowded in between services, um, my children, they'd come to, to second service. And when they arrived to church with my wife, they would see me in the crowd and they would recognize me and they would run to me and they would embrace me and they would just grab a hold of my waist and give me the biggest hug. Why? Because they knew my face. They knew my face. They recognized me. It wasn't merely another face lost in the crowd. No, they could pick me out of the crowd. But Jesus had a much different experience. His experience would be like if you were to go home, and you walk into the door, and your child is sitting there, and they look at you with a puzzled face, and they say, I'm sorry. Do I know you? Who are you? And what are you doing here? I'm not sure why you're here. How tragically ironic. In its darkness, the world does not recognize Jesus. But even worse, according to verse 11, not only was Jesus unrecognized, but he was also unwelcome. The world did not know him. His own people did not receive him. Some people in our culture have this strange idea that the world is somehow open and curious about who God is. They're eagerly waiting some kind of spiritual knowledge from heaven. They have this thought that they're actively seeking and searching for God, but that's not the case at all, because Jesus, as God came to their doorstep in the flesh and even told them, I am God. And they killed him. They're not sitting around waiting for God to come on their doorstep because he did and they killed him. Why is this the case? Why is he so uh, unwelcome? Why is the world so bent against God? Well, it's because of a point that we've already discussed. That the light shines in the world, exposes us for who we really are, and we don't like that. We don't like God getting all up in our stuff and exposing us for who we are in our sin. We actually prefer the darkness. We enjoy the darkness. This is what Jesus said later on in John 3, verse 19. He said, the light has come into the world, which is what we looked at this morning, but people loved darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And so on a personal level, as as the light shines on my heart, right? And as it reveals the darkest parts of my soul, I don't understand it. And I don't like how it makes me feel. Because if the light truly is who he says he is, then I've got to come to grips with what he says about me, who I am. If the light is truly who he says he is, then I am a wretched sinner in need of a savior if this is all true. Sure, I would receive the light. We would accept God. We would receive God if he affirms what we're doing, right? If he somehow strokes our ego and says that that, that we're okay, right? If God told me I'm okay, of course I would receive you and welcome you in, but that's not what he does. He's actually saying, no, you're not okay. And that's why my son Jesus needs to come to you. The light shows me that I'm not okay. It shows me my need for a savior and calls me to submission. It calls me to declare him Lord and submit my life to his care. How scandalous is that? Most of us would sit here and say, no thanks. I much prefer living in the dark if it means that I don't have to give up control if it means I don't have to submit or bow to anyone else but myself. I would much rather keep my mess hidden away to the best of my ability. And if you try and reveal it, if you try and show me how much of a sinner I am, then I'm going to fight back. And it's about to get nasty. All of us have been there before. Uh, There are some even in this room that are probably still comfortable and content in the darkness. And so, so what does it take for someone who initially rejects Jesus to instead receive him? It's nothing that we can do. No, what it takes is spiritual intervention. Right? It takes the loving pursuit of God, the loving pursuit of Jesus coming into the world, to, to come into our life and turn the lights on. This is the absurdity of the gospel in that while we didn't know Jesus and while we didn't receive Jesus, he still lovingly pursues us. He is patient with us. We must remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus later on as they had their conversation in the middle of the night. It's the most famous verse right? For God so loved the world. Love was a motivating factor. He loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Here's verse 17, just as important. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, Jesus shines the light On our darkness, yes. But this isn't meant to condemn us. This isn't meant to just make us feel bad and leave us there, no. He calls you out of the darkness because He loves you and He knows the pain and the suffering and the consequences of the darkness. And He does not want you to be there anymore. I have heard many stories of sons and daughters who walk away from their parents, who reject their parents. And I have seen the tears of parents who, despite that rejection, still love their children and would take them back in a heartbeat. In the same way, Jesus, in his love, is patient. He pursues which allows for some in the darkness of the world to receive him. And the main distinction in our passage here today between those who receive Jesus and those who do not receive Jesus is in verse 12. It's it's that those who receive Jesus are those who believe in his name. And our culture, a name really is just a designation, right? It's a title given to us. Um, by which we're known. But in biblical times, to refer to somebody's name or to talk about somebody's name was far more significant. To know someone's name was to know their character. It was really to know the fullness of who that person was. And so to believe In his name is so much more than just knowing that Jesus' name is Jesus. No, it means to put your faith and trust fully into his character. It's to acknowledge that everything he says about himself is true, that his nature is true. His name is all that he is. His name speaks to all that he is. It means believing in him as Lord and his Savior. That's what it means to believe in his name. And all those who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And There's a lot of people out there that make this claim that we are all God's children. It's something your grandma would probably say, right? Oh, we're just all God's children. We're all God's creation. And We can understand the confusion because, yes, in one sense, we are the offspring in that God created us all. However, it is only those who receive and believe in Jesus who have the right or the authority to claim that they are a child of God. Believers are actually brought into God's family, and they have the authority to claim all of the rights and privileges that go along with being in God's family. And how does this all happen? How are we brought in to the family of God? It's the same way that we're brought into any family, through birth, through birth. As many of you know, uh, my wife and I just had our fourth child. Her name is Olivia, Olivia Joy. And she is a Kazarowski. She's a Kazarowski and she has every right and authority to, to call herself a Kazarowski as she grows older. When she's, when she's older and somebody asks her name, when she goes to school or when she's applying for a job or when she gets her driver's license, she can definitively say, I am a Kazarowski. And, and they don't have to come to us. They don't have to come to Sarah and I and ask us, Hey, is she a Kazarowski? No, she has, Full rights and the full authority to claim that that is her name. And she has this right because she is a part of our family. she It's a right. There's a lot of talk these days about our rights, perhaps, and our freedoms being pulled away from us or taken away from us. And I don't want to comment any further on that. Uh, But one right that will never be taken away from the believer is the right to be called a child of God. We have the authority bestowed on us by God Almighty himself. And all of this happens once again through birth. But this birth is a different kind of birth. As verse 13 describes, yes, they were born, but not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, our baby daughter, Olivia, is a part of our family. Her blood is our blood. And she came into being because my wife and I willed it. It was our it was our desire. One day, a while back, we decided that we wanted a fourth child. And so we did. But in verse 13, it's saying, no, this, this is not quite the same. You're not born into God's family by any sort of physical birth. No, this is actually a spiritual birth. You don't become a believer because uh, as a result of your parents' or their human genes. Just because your parents received Jesus doesn't mean that you have. And parents out there, unfortunately, we cannot will our children to be believers. If we could, we would. But we're actually powerless to do so. No, the birth that is required to come into the family of God and have the right to become a child of God is not a natural birth. But a spiritual birth. There must be some kind of spiritual transformation. And the only one who can birth you, who can will it to happen, who can transform you, is God. One commentator says that this is a divine transaction. When somebody becomes a believer, this is a divine transaction as a result of divine initiative and divine intervention. It is something that God, in His mercy and grace, does. And just as you had no control over who you were born to or where you were born physically, your spiritual birth is out of your control. It's purely by the intervention of God's light that transforms you and welcomes you into the family. And so so to summarize, this is what has happened in this passage. Jesus, as the light of the world, has cast his light on you and has exposed all of the ugliness of your heart. And at first it was confusing, and then you didn't like it. The the light actually hurt because it brought things to light that you would much rather keep hidden. But then, in God's kindness and in his mercy, he regenerates you. He gives birth to you spiritually, which allows you to receive and believe in Jesus' name. God flips the light on and transforms your very nature. And this is the difference between Christianity and any other belief. Because in any other belief, the will of man can coerce you. They can will you to follow their rules and their guidelines, and they can will you to say all the right things, because every other belief is based in action, in what you do. But Christianity is not based in what you do. It is based on who you are. What makes you a believer is not based on your actions, based on you being here today, but it's based on who you are, a transformed child of God. You were born out of the Spirit and your very nature has changed. And so I wonder this morning, if you've ever encountered such spiritual birth, such supernatural birth as the light continues to shine on our darkness, as you examine Jesus and all of his glory, of the lights finally clicked on? Has your heart been opened to see the light of Jesus? Do you see the need for a savior or will you continue to reject him and live in darkness? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that while I was still a sinner and while I still rejected you, Christ came and died on my behalf. Lord, I pray that our attitude would be that of John the Baptist, where we would recognize that everything we've done and everything we are is nothing, that Jesus must increase and we must decrease, Lord, because as we we come at it from that mentality, it helps us to submit to him knowing that he is Lord and Savior. I ask, Father, that you would wake up those, perhaps, that you would turn the lights on that have still rejected Jesus. Lord, I pray that your spirit would intervene. And in your holy name, I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and close our time singing one more song. Would you stand and join me?